0: Scripturing scripture reading this morning is going to be in Acts chapter 23. We're going to be reading verses 12 through 35. Go ahead and remain seated, and I will read these verses for us. Acts 23, beginning with verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink, till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, Paul called one of the centurions and said, "Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him." So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, "Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring to you this young man, as he has something to say to you." The tribune took him, took him by the hand, and going aside, asked him privately, "What is it that you have to tell me?" And he said. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers, with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen, to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride, and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. When it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to uh, Antipatris, and on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. When he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's Petroleum. Our Father and our God, we ask now that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word. Uh, Help us as we seek to learn and grow in uh, our understanding of Scripture and of you and your ways. I pray that you would uh, guide our hearts and our minds in our study of Scripture this morning. Help us to be uh, more confident in your promises. Help us to learn uh, everything that it is that the Spirit of God has for us from this text. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. We are continuing our study of the book of Acts in chapter 23, and uh, Paul is at this point in Jerusalem, having been arrested, uh, held in prison for a few days at this point. The Roman Tribune has been trying to figure out what Paul has been doing wrong. We've seen that over the last several weeks. This is the uh, Roman official, high-ranking official uh, stationed here in Jerusalem, and he's been trying to get to the bottom of what it is that the charges are against Paul. Uh, As we saw last time, he even had Paul go before the Sanhedrin, uh, hoping to get some clarity through that trial. That, of course, ended abruptly as Paul brought up the subject of the resurrection, uh, which caused a division among the council, and while they were fighting with each other, Paul was taken back to his prison cell. Verse 11 is going to be very important to our study this morning. This is from last week. Uh, We read this verse, but it really sets the context of everything that we're going to look at today. After Paul's trial before the Sanhedrin was over, verse 11 says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. As we're going to see in the text today, God's promise to Paul that he would testify for Christ in the city of Rome could not be thwarted by the schemes of Paul's enemies. And so just keep in mind the promise that that God gave to Paul as we work through the text. Verse 12 tells us that when Paul was in prison, some Jews in Jerusalem who hated Paul had conspired together to assassinate him. Verse 12 says, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. So they're serious about this. Now they are committing themselves to the mission. The goal of their life is to kill Paul. Verse 13, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. And now here's their plan. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So here's the plan. The leaders of the council, are going to request that Paul be brought before them for further examination, as if they're going to continue the trial that ended so abruptly last time. And while Paul is being transferred from the prison to the court of the Jews, these 40 men would attack him and kill Paul. And you figure there might be uh, half a dozen Roman soldiers involved in securing Paul and bringing him to where he's supposed to be going. And so 40 men should be able to handle them pretty easily and kill Paul. Paul. But then verse 16 says, The son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now that's really interesting. Uh, Apparently, Paul has a sister. Uh, We don't know anything about Paul's family. They're never mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. And it's kind of frustrating because you wonder, uh, were these people Christians? Was Paul's family converted to Christ? Had they rejected him and kicked him out of the family when he converted? What was the relationships like? And the answer to all of that is we just don't know. But apparently he had at least one relative uh, that cared for him. This would be Paul's nephew. Uh, Very likely this boy was being educated in the city of Jerusalem just like Paul had been when he was a younger man. Uh, We have no indication, again, one way or another about whether this nephew was a follower of Christ. Uh, It may be that he was a committed Jew. Maybe he thought Paul was wrong. But there was at least that familial care for his uncle. And so he decides that he's going to do something about this. Uh, So verse 17, after the the nephew of Paul comes and tells him about this plot of the Jews, Paul calls one of the centurions and says, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. Again, the tribune is the main guy in charge of Paul's case. Verse 18, so he brought him uh, to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me. And asked me to bring uh, to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The Tribune took him by the hands; was probably a very young boy. And going aside, asked him privately, "What is it that you have to tell me?" And he said, "The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for them." who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Now this is really a remarkable series of events. Uh, The fact that this young boy just happened to hear about the plot. I mean, what are the odds? That as these men are conspiring together, uh, who is there but Paul's nephew? And then the fact that the centurion uh, listens to Paul's instructions and brings the boy to this high-ranking Roman official. And then the fact that the tribune actually listens to him and takes decisive action at the word of a young boy. All of those are unlikely events. Uh, none of this is a coincidence. God is working through these things in order to bring Paul to Rome to fulfill his promise that he made to him in verse 11. And so from the very start, the conspiracy against Paul had zero chance of succeeding, because for it to succeed, God's promise to Paul would have been broken. There's no chance of that. doesn't matter how many people are involved in the plot. doesn't matter what kind of clever plan they come up with. It cannot happen, because God said to Paul, you're going to Rome. And so the tribune, having learned of this plot from Paul's nephew, he calls 200 of the centurions in verse 23 and says to them, get ready 200 soldiers uh, with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. So they're going to sneak out of Jerusalem with Paul at night. They're going to ride quickly with hundreds of soldiers to make sure that nobody can get to Paul. This is maximum security prison transfer in the ancient world. Uh, this would be like today, you've got a bunch of armored trucks and a military you know, uh, escort taking a prisoner from one place to another. And then verse 25, there's this letter written to Governor Felix. This is going to be the governor of Caesarea. Uh, basically, the tribune is delivering Paul over to his custody. And so he writes a letter explaining who this prisoner is, why he's being given to Felix. And so verse 25, he writes a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, and this is where we learn the name of the tribune, apparently was Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix. Greetings. This man, speaking of Paul, was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. That's not exactly how it happened, as you remember. Uh, he learned that Paul was a Roman citizen after he was about to uh, beat him and flog him. Uh, but he sort of tweaks the order of events a little bit to make himself look like the hero, uh, going in and pulling Paul out of a mob because he knows that, that Paul was a Roman citizen. Uh, verse 28, the letter continues. Desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. So he says, as far as I can tell, Paul hasn't committed any sort of uh, serious crime. Uh, it has something to do with Jewish theology, some sort of point of their, their religion that they're disputing. And so verse 30, when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Uh, so the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antip- Antipatris, Uh, And the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. So now Paul is in the custody of the governor of Caesarea, uh, Felix. We're going to learn more about him uh, in the next chapter. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. When he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's uh, praetorium. So, Uh, Now Paul is being held in Caesarea, he's been transferred to the prison there, and he's awaiting trial before the governor Felix. Uh, And so the high priests and some of the other Jewish uh, leaders of the Sanhedrin, they're going to come up to Caesarea, they're going to bring the charges against Paul uh, before Felix, and Felix will be the judge now over what takes place with Paul. As I've said already, I think the main spiritual takeaway from this text is the power of the promise of God. God orchestrated all of these events so that Paul would escape the plot of these men, and so that he would ultimately end up preaching in Rome. Uh, For a few years at the end of Paul's life, as we see at the end of the book of Acts, uh, Paul is in Rome ministering freely, and so the promise of God is kept. Uh, He makes it to Rome eventually, and he's in some sort of a house arrest situation where he's given freedom uh, to have visitors, to preach uh, openly to everyone around. And so verse 30, this is the, the last two verses of the book of Acts. So this is where we end up. It says that Paul lived there two whole years in Rome at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Two years of ministry Paul had in the city of Rome. This was the fulfillment of God's promise to him way back in Acts 23 verse 11. Jesus said to him, you're going to preach in Rome. And from the time that that promise was made to Paul until the end of the book when he finally gets to Rome, Paul knew that he was essentially immortal. Nothing could touch him because God had promised to him that he was going to make it to Rome. In chapter 27, as we'll see in the Weeks to come, Paul is on a ship headed for Rome, and they're caught in a severe storm. Uh, They eventually crash into a reef, and the ship is broken apart. And you might think, boy, that's the end of it. Uh, Paul has no chance of surviving this. Everybody's freaking out, but not Paul, because Paul knows he's got to get to Rome. God promised me I'm going to Rome, and Paul had absolute confidence in that promise. The Lord appeared to Paul during that storm, and the time that everybody was panicking, and he reminds him of his promise. Verse 20 of Acts 27 says, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And then it says in verse 21 that they had been without food for a long time. The situation looked hopeless. No food, clouds were covering the stars, so they can't even navigate, they don't know where they are. And then there's this huge storm the whole time for these many days. Paul stands up among them and says, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. We'll get to that later, but he kind of tells them, I told you so. Uh, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you but of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. The promise of God was enough for Paul. He knew that he was making it to Rome one way or another. Doesn't matter. Uh, whether there's a storm, doesn't matter if the boat ends up crashing as it does, they end up having to swim to an island holding on to planks of wood that broke apart from the ship, but they survive. Then in the next chapter, Acts 28, as they're on this island, a poisonous snake bites Paul. And all the native people of the island are looking at him thinking, oh boy, he's about to die, but Paul shakes off the snake and he's fine. Uh, what's the point of all that? Why is all of that in the Bible? It's to tell us that God's promise is certain. God had told Paul he's going to Rome, and the power of that word from God could not be thwarted. No plot to kill Paul could succeed. No snake bite could kill him. No storm or shipwreck could harm him, because God said. The promises of God are certain. I'm going to show you now a handful of verses Uh, that people often wrongly assume to be speaking about the preservation of Scripture. Uh, But in reality, these are verses talking about the reliability of God's promises. Okay, So here's one, Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Now, that isn't saying there's a Bible somewhere in, in heaven. That's not the point. Often we assume your word refers to the 66 books of our Bible, but that's not necessarily what it's talking about. Uh, It refers to whatever God declares. Now, of course, some of that is in our Bible. God speaks and promises us things in Scripture. But don't read a verse like this and immediately think again about those 66 books you know in front of you. No, what Psalm 119.89 is saying is that the promises of God are firmly fixed. When God speaks, the matter is settled. If he determines something to take place, it is firmly and forever established in heaven. When God says, let there be light, there is light. His words are sure. They are powerful and unchanging. Here's another similar statement from Jesus in Matthew 5. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, Not one iota, not one dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Again, Jesus is stressing the fact that everything promised in the law and in the prophets, all the shadows and the types contained in the Old Testament that were pointing to Christ, they must all be fulfilled. Not one dot, not one letter will pass away meaning that nothing that God has promised in his word will fail to be accomplished. Not one word of it. Jesus says it will all come to pass. Uh, Again, over in Luke 21, Jesus is predicting here the fall of Jerusalem, and he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So he's just given there in in Luke 21. We're not going to go back over all of that. Uh, this long prophecy about the judgment of God that's coming uh, against the city of Jerusalem, and it did come in AD 70. And he says there is no chance that this will not take place. He says there's a better chance of heaven and earth passing away than there is of my words, this prophecy I've just given you, not coming to pass. It will happen. And so all of these texts are about the certain reliability of God's words, his promises. Whatever God says will take place. Human promises aren't always reliable. I think all of us at times have experienced uh, humans that have made us promises and not kept them. And maybe at times we've made other people promises and not kept them. It's part of human existence that people say that they will do some things and then they fail to do them. Uh, certainly we see that whenever. Uh, there's an election coming up, right? Politicians make all of these promises and then they get into office and do basically none of them. A bunch of promises made, usually very few kept. Human promises can fail for a few reasons. I thought of four. First of all, we lie. Sometimes our promises are not kept because we have no intention of keeping them. Uh, we say that we're going to do something and we're just lying. Human beings are sinful. And so sometimes we promise things with zero intention of following through. A second reason for our broken promises are unforeseen circumstances. You might say that you're going to do something, and you might really believe that you're going to, but then something else comes up. And you have to take care of that, and so you're not able to keep your promise. Third, sometimes our promises are broken because the thing we promise to do turns out to not really be possible. It's beyond our ability. And so we promise that we would do something fully intending to do it, but we can't. And then there's the fourth reason that we sometimes fail to keep our promises is we change our mind. Sometimes we say we're going to do something, we make a promise, and then we decide, I'm not going to do that. Now here's the thing about God. None of those four issues are problems with God. And this is why we can have total confidence in the promises of God. First of all, unlike us, God doesn't lie. Titus 1 1. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies, promised before the ages began. Paul says you can trust in the promises of God because God never lies. He never says something with no intention of following through. Uh, Not only does God not lie, he actually cannot lie. Hebrews 6, verse 17, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God's promises can be held and clinged to. We can be confident that he will keep his word to us because it is impossible for God to lie. It cannot happen. There are very few things that God cannot do, but lying is one of them. Secondly, unlike us, God cannot not foresee something. Again, sometimes we, we're not necessarily lying. We make a promise, we give someone our word, but then something else comes up that we didn't plan on. That can't happen with God. Nothing ever interrupts God's plans. There's never a situation in which God is caught off guard by circumstances like we are. And so when God promises something, he does so knowing everything that will happen between now and the fulfillment of that promise. Isaiah 46 verse 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. God sees the end from the beginning. He sees the future as clearly as we see the present And so when God predicts that something will happen, he is seeing it happen right before his eyes as he's saying it. That's what it means that he can see the end from the beginning. He can literally say, this is going to happen, and he's watching it take place in HD right in front of him. It's a settled fact. It's not a guess. God's promises cannot fail because he has perfect knowledge of all things in the future. When God tells Paul he's going to preach the gospel at Rome, he did so knowing full well that these 40 men were going to plot to kill him. Uh, God knew about that before they knew about it, before they had even planned it. God knew they were going to. God knew this plan before they were even born. God knew about the storm on the way to Rome. God knew about the snake that would bite Paul. None of this caught God by surprise. He's not reacting to these various problems that keep coming up. No, God saw all of it in detail right in front of him before it took place. He sees the end from the beginning. He can look across time, and so there is no unforeseen circumstances with God. And so when he promises something, he does so with perfect knowledge of the future. Third, God is sovereign. Again, sometimes we promise something and we can't actually do it. Sometimes our promises fail because of our weakness. God's promises come with the backing of his absolute control over the universe. God can make anyone do anything at any time. God can orchestrate events in order to bring about his purposes. The schemes of man, the forces of hell cannot overcome the power of God's word. God can make Paul's nephew just happened to be within earshot of a plan. God can make the tribune listen to the word of a little boy and take action on it, because God is in absolute control. When God determines something to take place, it is as good as done, because God is sovereign. Number four, sometimes we fail to keep promises again because we change our mind. God doesn't. When he promises something, he will never go back on that. Numbers 23, verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? And so there are the the four reasons that we sometimes fail to keep our word. None of those are possible with God. And so the promises of God are certain, they are fixed. We can have absolute confidence that every word that God speaks will be kept. Because God cannot lie. Because God sees <clears throat> the future perfectly. Because God is in control of all things and because God never changes his mind. Uh, three applications of all of this, kind of drawing this together now. Number one, you can know that your salvation is settled because of the promise of God. It should be a comfort to each one of us that our salvation is grounded on the word of God, which cannot change. When God promises that all who repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ will be forever forgiven and granted eternal life with him, that is a promise that will never fail. Ephesians 2 verse 4 says that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Paul says there, God saved us, he raised us up, and he has seated us in heavenly places with him. Those are actions that God has done. Okay, You say, wait a minute, (laughs) I haven't even died yet, let alone have I been resurrected and put in heaven with Christ. But in the eyes of God, you have because he sees the end from the beginning. He sees it as if it's already taken place. It's a done deal. And so your salvation can be absolutely relied upon because God's promises are absolutely reliable. Number two, never doubt the promises of God. Uh, Sometimes it's hard for us to believe in the promises of God. Circumstances tend to cause doubt to arise in our hearts. Maybe if we were in Paul's shoes We might have been concerned about these 40 men taking a vow to kill us. That's a lot of men, very committed uh, to our demise. Maybe the storm would have been enough for us to begin to doubt the word of God. Maybe after the snake snake bit us, we would think, man, I don't know if I'm going to make it to Rome after all. But don't let circumstances cause you to doubt what God has said. His promises cannot fail. His words cannot pass away. More reliable then the rising of the sun is the fulfillment of God's promise. And all of this leads perhaps to the most crucial point of the sermon. Don't miss this last bit. Number three, we must be certain that these promises of God that we're relying on and believing in and staking our lives on are being interpreted correctly. Often we become disillusioned with God for breaking a promise that he never actually made to us. We misinterpret something in Scripture, and so we end up thinking that God's Word can't really be trusted. But in reality, we just can't really read. Uh, Let me show you what I mean. I'm going to ruin a Bible verse for you, if that's okay. Uh, Jeremiah 29.11. Here's one of the most often quoted passages in the Bible. Okay, here it is. If you Google uh, biblical promises, this is going to be at the top of the list. Jeremiah 29.11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Now, doesn't that all sound so nice? Uh, Isn't that so comforting that God has said his plans for me are good and not evil? He promises to give me welfare and a future and hope. Everything's going to work out great in my life. Just one problem. He's not talking to you. Uh, Jeremiah is not written to you. It is written to the Jewish people who are going to be in exile in Babylon for the next 70 years. And God is promising Israel in exile that they will be restored to their land, that they will have a future that God's not done with them. That's the promise. And Christians in our day are so busy cross-stitching Jeremiah 29.11 on pillows that we haven't taken the time to read the verse that comes right before it. Okay, Jeremiah 29.10, let's put it in context. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, who's the you? Well, unless you are in exile in Babylon for the next 70 years, you're not the one that God is talking to here. And so God is promising Israel that although things are very rough for them right now, although the Babylonians have come and conquered them and taken them as prisoners away, God will bring them back to their land. He has plans for them to restore the nation of Israel, to give them a future in the promised land. That's not a promise about you and I having a pleasant life. How weird would it be If someone was reading the account of Paul in Acts 23 and they decided that God was promising them that they would not die until they got to Rome, that would be ridiculous. Obviously, that was God's promise to Paul, not a universal promise to everyone. I'll probably never go to Rome. Okay, And we all should recognize, I hope, it would be silly for me to think that when God told Paul you're going to go to Rome and preach, that that somehow has any bearing on my life personally. So why do we do that with Jeremiah 29.11? Why do we do that with so many other verses? We act as if God is talking to us specifically instead of reading carefully who it is that God was speaking to. It's a promise for Israel in exile that God would restore them, not a universal promise for everyone in every place. God was talking to someone, not to everyone. And so we have to be very careful about promises that we see in Scripture. We have to ask ourselves, first of all, is this verse a universal promise or is God making a promise to a particular person or group of people? Uh, There are universal promises, of course, and there are promises of God repeated to different people in different situations that reveal something about God's character which never changes. For example, in Isaiah 55.7, God says, let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That is a universal promise of God. It's made all throughout Scripture, that if we repent, if we turn to the Lord, he will forgive our sins. doesn't matter how wicked we are, we are never beyond God's grace to forgive. That is a promise that can be trusted. It's made to many people all throughout Scripture. Uh, here's another, James 4. But he gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw near to you. Uh, God's nearness to the humble, again, is a consistent theme throughout Scripture. We can know that if we humble ourselves and submit to our Lord, he will not be far from each one of us. I could show you dozens of passages that teach these points. But the idea of health and wealth and happiness and no suffering awaiting Christians is nonsense. People think that everything is going to get better if they start coming to church, if they start giving money, if they start reading their Bibles and praying. But the Bible doesn't make those promises. Our Lord was murdered. We follow in His footsteps, and so we should not be surprised when we come into suffering. First Peter chapter four, Peter writes, "Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed." So here's the point: uh, trusting in God's promises is a good thing. That's been the point of the sermon, that God's promises are absolutely reliable and trustworthy. But we need to be careful Bible readers so that we can be actually certain that what we're trusting and what we're clinging to as a promise of God is what God actually has promised. Sometimes we misinterpret promises by failing to see that there are conditions. Here's another way that we Uh, take a promise of God, but then we fail to notice, oh, there's conditions to this promise. It's not just a blanket statement. For example, Jesus said in Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Did you catch the condition? Most people read these verses and they walk away thinking, Great, God's going to provide all of my needs. I don't have to worry. He's going to give me food. He's going to give me clothing. He's going to give me everything that I need. And they miss the fact that Jesus said all these things will be added to those who seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Yes, God will provide our needs as you seek after him and work to advance his kingdom. There's a condition there. Uh, Similarly, along the same lines, people read verses about financial prosperity and they miss the fact that those principles are conditioned on diligent work. Proverbs 10, verse 3, the Lord does not let... The righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the cravings of the wicked. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. So putting verses 3 and 4 together, a part of being righteous before God is getting a job and working hard. (laughs) Diligent work is a part of what it means to be righteous. You can't ignore parts of Scripture about working hard and then expect to receive God's blessings that he says are for those who diligently work. Now, lazy people, those with a slack hand, as verse 4 says, will come to poverty. That's a promise of God, too. God says that very clearly. And this is where the prosperity gospel goes off the rails. Okay, nowhere in Scripture does God promise to increase your wealth if you become a Christian and you read your Bible and you pray every day and you go to church. None of that's biblical. Instead, what we find are principles that lead to prosperity, like diligent work, like saving money, like not being an alcoholic. I mean, Proverbs gets very practical about this stuff, saying, here are some actions that you can take that lead to poverty, here are some actions that that you take that lead to prosperity. And then there's also, in, in the book of Proverbs, the people that gain wealth through wicked means. Of course, that is possible, sometimes People grow rich and they're not actually following biblical principles. But most of the time, when people earn wealth, it is as a result of their diligent work, day after day, year after year. Uh, I won't get too detailed about this, but my own family is kind of an example of this. I was born into a very poor family. Uh, My parents started off living in a trailer. Uh, They had three kids within their first four years of marriage, which most people would think, boy... Uh, You are financially just ruined for the rest of your life. How are you ever going to dig out of a hole like this? Uh, That was in the early 90s. Fast forward to today, my parents are quite well off. They aren't the richest people in the world, but they have some financial wealth. And how this happened isn't complicated. Okay, There's not a magical, mystical secret to it. My dad got up at 5.30 every morning and went to work. And he usually came home around 6.30 at night. So that's about 80 hours a week. He did that every week for about 30 years. And people look at someone like my dad and think, he's just lucky. Uh, Life has just worked out well for him. Uh, Every couple of years, he pays for our our whole family, all the kids and grandkids, to go to Hawaii for a vacation. And I've heard people say things when I mention that, like, wow, must be nice to have that kind of money. But there's two things people don't know. First of all, the decades of 80-hour work weeks that my dad put in to ever get to that point And then secondly, my parents are extremely generous givers. For my entire life, they followed the biblical principle of putting first the kingdom of God. They gave the first 10% of their income to their local church. Right now, they're helping to fund a church plant in Burlington, Vermont. Uh, They give to missions constantly. They're very kingdom-minded with their money, thinking of how they could give to the work of the Lord. A lot of Christians want God's blessing, without following God's commands. They ignore the conditions of God's promises. They want God to meet their needs and provide for their bills, but then they don't want to get up every morning and go to their job, because it's not fun. But the Bible says, get a job, go to work every day, make money, give generously to the work of the Lord, seek his kingdom first, be diligent, and after a few years of that, see how God's blessing on your life Uh, See how he meets your needs. It's not complicated. It's just hard work. 1 Thessalonians 3, here's Paul's words on the subject. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So here's the point. Of all of this, don't get mad at God for failing to meet your needs when you're not getting a job. Uh, that's the kind of thing that I mean by getting mad at God for promises he never made. He never told people that if you sit at home, if you're you know, lazy, you don't work, that he's going to take care of all your needs. No. The promises of God to provide are associated with conditions about diligent work. And so all of this is trying to stress the point When it comes to the promises of God, we can absolutely rely on the word of God. But we must be careful Bible readers. Pay attention to the context of the promise. Who is God promising this to? Is it really a universal promise or is it to a specific person at a specific time? Pay attention to the conditions of the promise. Is there something like, if you do this, then God will do this? Uh, You don't get the blessing that God promises without also following the instructions at the beginning of that. Uh, One more example of this, just to wrap up this morning, I know we've looked at several different uh, types of promises. Here's one more, another verse that's often quoted and often misapplied. Uh, This one is a universal promise to all followers of Jesus. Okay, This is not just to specific people at a specific time. This promise applies to all Christians. Here it is, Romans 8, verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, a lot of people read a verse like that and they think, great, everything in my life is going to go awesome. Uh, No more suffering, no more hardships. Everything's going to be great. I'm going to have a wonderful life if I follow Jesus. But is that really what Romans 8.28 is saying? Again, we need to be careful Bible readers. Lest we put God's Uh, words in God's mouth, and end up clinging to something that God wasn't actually saying. God doesn't say in Romans 8.28 that everything will work out just as we would have hoped. Nor does God promise that all things will work together for what we consider to be good. Uh, God's definition of what is good for us is defined in the very next verse. Again, so often just reading the context uh, helps you to more accurately understand what God is saying. So verse 28, we know that uh, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for, so here's the explanation of this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So putting uh, putting the promise verse together with 28 and 29, here's God's promise. All Christians, everything in your life, is a part of God's plan to conform you more and more to the image of Christ. That is the good that God is working in your life. That includes happy times and times of sorrow and pain. That includes pleasant things. That includes trials. God works through all of that to mature you, to build you up in your faith, to grow you in holiness, to draw you closer to him. That's God's promise to all of his children. And so we close today with the words of Philippians 1.6, which says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's a promise that we can be sure of as well.